0: Okay, so today we're going to continue with the series that I think we've been on for, I think in the neighborhood of five weeks. I think this is about the sixth week. And we are looking at eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel. As you know, um, for a number of reasons after the Civil War, uh, what uh, was taught is the content of Christianity began to change with the uh, rise of the fundamentalist modernist controversy where uh, both sides of that debate uh, took completely new paradigms for interpreting Scripture. And so uh, uh, a Bible-believing Christianity developed that had very little to do with the Bible. And uh, that's kind of where most of evangelicalism is today. And uh, uh, what we're trying to do, one of the things that's been affected by that is how the gospel is preached. Now, uh, as you know, the gospel actually comes from a German word, and it just simply means to announce glad tidings. And um, in the Greek, euangelon, which we get evangelist from or evangelism from, uh, means to proclaim the good news. And one of the things we want to emphasize is the what's called re, you know reading the reverse negative. The whole idea of reading comprehension is based on being able when you read to uh, read what it's not saying. What is what you know? What uh, what it means? To, implied by what it's what it's saying on the opposite side. So, if the Bible says "thou shall not steal," that means two things: people steal, and including the government, it's called taxes. And uh, uh, let's not go there any more than that. But uh, uh, and it means that uh, God is endorsing private property if uh the if the bible says thou shall not kill it means people do murder and it means that life is valuable according to god so uh, when uh if there's good news there has to be bad news uh it's simple as that and and if you really kind of study the trends of modernism since so since, oh, early 19th century and the trends in christianity both of them have moved in a direction of having less and less content and what you might call the the bad news side of the equation. And therefore, the culture around us doesn't want to hear our good news because they don't really see any need to hear it. So that's uh, some of what we're trying to address here. Now, in this eight essential elements, I just want to Uh, remind us for those who are coming on Tuesday nights, again, we'll have just Tuesday this week and not Thursday. I have to be in Toledo on Thursday. And um, so if you have that worldview overview, I use this in a couple of my humanities classes at Sinclair Community College and so forth, uh, especially my class called The Human Image and and the other one called The Search for Utopia, which is all about the history of utopian literature and so forth. Um, The Uh, A worldview consists of three component parts, which you can reduce to questions. So the first one is who or what is ultimately real. And for a Judeo-Christian perspective, that ultimate reality is the biblical God. Uh, We covered in element one, we covered an overview of the most important attributes or characteristics of the biblical view of God. Uh, In a a naturalist or humanist worldview, the ultimate reality is material and uh, everything can be explained in naturalistic, materialistic uh, causes, and we reject the spiritual or supernatural side of life. Uh, the second question is, what is the nature of man? If you notice, that's the, the second element that we started on last week. And um, what we're uh, going to get into today is three questions about the nature of man, which we'll get to in a minute. And um then finally, uh, what is man's relationship to his fellow man, or what is man in society? That has to do with philosophies of history, uh, uh, philosophies of economics, social systems, philosophies of anthropology, sociology, etc. So, um, and that, of course, is ex- expressed in the Bible first, first and foremost in the covenant God made with Israel, uh, with the Ten Commandments, and then, of course, a lot of people are, not, are unfamiliar with the. The Ten Commandments are explained throughout the whole Bible. They're repeated both in the Old Testament and New Testament many, many times. And they're often uh, repeated in what most modern translations mistranslate as statutes or ordinances. But uh, they are really case laws. That's a better, you know, so if you know anything about studying law, when you study law, you study case laws. So Jesus gave us a case law. When he said, "You heard that you were not supposed to murder," but I say that if you even are angry with your brother in 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 your heart enough to diminish their humanity by calling them a raka, which means an airhead, uh, if, in in other words, if you have this attitude of these people are stupid, and I'm I I, I you know, but I'm not, <laughs> uh, which uh, is you know called pride. Uh, if, uh, when, we, when we have that in our hearts, we, we are reducing the value of human life. We are, we're murdering in our hearts uh, when we see ourselves as better than others and they are somehow airheads, etc. So he's giving us a case law about what thou shall not murder means. Uh, when he says, you've heard you shall not commit adultery, he says, I tell you that if you even lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. So, um, uh, so, uh, he's given us a case law of, of what, uh, not committing adultery means. Uh, Leviticus 18, for instance, is a whole chapter about case laws of what, uh, what it means that thou shalt not commit adultery. Leviticus 23 is a whole chapter about what it means to keep the Lord's day holy and so forth. So, um, now, the Ten Commandments interestingly in in Commandment ten before it even gets into the case laws, does the same thing Jesus did in Matthew five there when it says, "Thou shalt not covet so he's saying you he's saying it's not you don't only can't steal, you can't even want to in your heart you can't you can't be jealous of other people's gifts, talents, possessions, etc uh you need to find thankfulness and contentment in the Lord for who you are and what He's given you and build, uh, on that. So, uh, that's, uh, you know, we'll get into that more when we get to the Ten Commandments, but that's the basis in the foundation, uh, for Western views of law. If you, uh, know anything about Blackwell's commentaries, uh, which is the whole basis of English law and so forth, and I imagine they're still mentioned at least in some law schools and so forth, but, uh, uh, if you know what what those were, they were based on the Ten Commandments. There, believe it or not, there was a time when jurors in this country would sit with their Bibles in their laps uh, during the case, uh, thinking about what case laws most apply to this case they're trying. Um, there was actually a Supreme Court case just uh, uh, three or four years ago where uh, somebody during the jury deliberations, got out their Bible and referred to a scripture and the judge threw the case out for violating the wall between church and state. Interesting how things have changed. So let's set the table to talk about worldviews for just a little bit. I'll probably have to take two weeks to do this outline, I'm guessing, but let's see what we can do. 2 Corinthians 4, one through seven. Therefore, since we have this ministry or service, ministry means service, just as God has shown us mercy we do not become discouraged. Uh, some translations, faint-hearted, or, or so forth. We don't. We don't quit. But we have renounced or rejected. Some translations, disgraceful hidden deeds, not behaving with deceptiveness or adulterating the word of God. Some translations say altering, adulterating is the New American Standard. I've blended three translations here. Um, adulterating the word of God, but by open proclamation of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience before God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, among whom the small g God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as slaves for Jesus' sake." For God who who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the glorious knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I have mostly blended the ESV and the New New English translation, quite different philosophies of translation there, uh, except for the word adulterating I took out of the uh, New American Standard Bible. So um, uh, the, the, the bold emphasis there is mine. And um, the uh, italics uh, mean that it's a quote from the Old Testament, and where it says, let light shine out of darkness, that's actually a quote from quite a few places, composite quote from the Old Testament, as Jesus did often, Paul is also doing, uh, from Genesis 1, 2 through 4, Isaiah 9, 2, and other places. Uh, So remembering the uh, culture of the verse negative, I can't, And uh, emphasize enough, beginning with philosophies like uh, Freud, we'll mention er, later, uh, uh, Marx, many many Western philosophies that developed uh, in the late 18th and throughout the 19th century would be philosophies that would negate uh, the Bible's view of God, man, and the commandments, and therefore they would. Render needing the good news obsolete because the good news is only important if you have the bad news. And the Bible's view of salvation is very much, I know you probably get tired of hearing this, but my favorite book when I was a little kid or one of my favorite top five that I read many times, I had this habit of reading the same book over and over again a lot of times if I liked it. Uh, So one of them was called uh, The Night That Dykes Broke. And it was about a time in the 50s when the dikes around the Netherlands actually uh, broke due to a a bad storm. And and people woke up. They didn't have the kind of warning system they might have had. They did have warning systems. There were church bells ringing and sirens going off and so forth. But by the time the people heard them, it was too late to get out of the house. Their, Their house was already filling up with water. And they really hadn't thought it through well enough because their boats were in the their boats were in the uh, barn, not attached to the house. they should have had the boats in the attic uh and a way to get up and get the attic open but uh which they now have uh but um you know people were forced to go to the second floor then they were forced to to go to the attic and then they were forced to bust through to the ceiling and get on the apex immediately England France Germany uh, etc., dispatched every helicopter pretty much in all of Europe, came to the Netherlands, and uh people were on the peaks of the roof, and either you got rescued or you didn't get rescued. It's as simple as that. And the Bible's depiction of of who God is and who man is in relation to God is basically that we cannot rescue ourselves. I am I am I am done with calling Jesus my savior or because of of what we have made it mean so little in evangelicalism. Jesus is your rescuer. Life is, uh, basically has two postures. Either there are people who just drowned and in their beds and never woke up and didn't know the flood even entered the house. And there are other people who somehow got alarmed to the flood and made it to the peak of the roof and either Those people, the Bible says, those of us who have fled for refuge from the wrath of God in Jesus Christ. Christians are people who have said, I'm as as selfish, conceited, know-it-all, arrogant, uh, covetous, petty, jealous as everybody else, and probably worse. And I need to be rescued from all that. And I cannot just get a little therapy. I can't uh, buy a lot of self improvement books and watch a lot of PBS self improvement lecture guys uh, who do fundraisers and so forth. Um, I I I need a savior, a rescuer. I need a deliverer, and I need to be delivered from enemies that are more powerful than I, which uh, include three groups of enemies. Our our own internal sinful nature pogo we have met the enemy and he is us i'm i'm the problem is what christianity is basically saying you know i I should get a bumper sticker i've never had bumper stickers but that would be a good i'm the problem (laughs) of course there'd be a lot of people who would be saying amen (laughs) especially people who know me uh so you know uh you know uh I hate to say it, but the first uh, point of Christianity is besides that God is awesome and holy and absolutely other and transcendent and eternal and outside and above time is that, uh, you're not. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you need a rescuer. So with that in mind, let's, let's get into, uh um, uh, just looking at the three questions real quick that you would ask in a worldview. Now, I covered these for a two-hour and 20-minute lecture this past Tuesday night, and uh, I noticed last night that uh, that we haven't been getting the Tuesday and Thursday night lectures on the website yet, but we will try to work on that this week and get that rectified, I hope, And uh, for those of you who want to follow those. Um, so the first question you ask when you do a worldview uh, and you're at about the nature of man, is this. Does mankind or human beings have an intrinsic ethical nature? Intrinsic means built in. Are we predisposed, or do we have a moral predisposition? Okay, does, does in other words... Um, One of the basic ideas of Christianity is that uh, because we're made in the image of God, and we'll talk a little bit later today about what's called the fall of man or man's disobedience and rebellion from God, because of that, uh, we would all have some common things in our humanity with each other. And one of those questions, therefore, is are we all morally predisposed? And there's three major answers to that that we that we are basically good. Uh, another way of stating, are, are we basically good? Are we basically neutral? That position, by the way, is a very famous position, and it's normally uh, used a Latin word called tabula rasa, which just means a blank table or a blank slate, blank tablet. Same root word as table and tablet. Um, all right, in other words, do we come in morally not predisposed? If we're neutral, uh, those who have that view, as you'll we'll see, have a tendency to think that uh, how you turn out is mostly about your environment. Um, where was I? Um, or are we? Are we? Is mankind basically evil? In other words, are we twisted or perverted? Not in the modern sense of that word, like sexually perverted but that would be just a manifestation of our overall per- perversion is that is are we twisted uh so that you know the, that we're not living in harmony with our nature and and so forth now you know in the law the old testament it says you can't boil a kid that is a a child goat in his mother's milk right now just like paul says you can't muscle the the ox while it's threshing that's in the law and then he Paul quotes that in the new testament and says god is not concerned about oxen is he no it's a principle that the worker is worthy of his wages you if you're going to use animal labor treat them well nurture them feed them so forth you can't put a muzzle on the ox so that he won't eat too much food while he's while he's working in the fields because uh, that would be perverted. That would be against his nature. The reason you can't boil a, mo- a kid in his mother's milk is because the mother's milk was made to nurture the kid, and therefore it's an absolute opposite position, purpose for why the milk was created. Now God doesn't care about uh, how you cook your goats, <laughs> and uh, uh, which we uh, all enjoyed last Sunday afternoon at the wedding. But, um, but he does care about making sure things are used in the design that they were created for. Okay, so again, um, some, some people believe that man is good. Now, uh, if you study the idea of materialism, which gives birth to the religion called naturalism or, which is, or humanism, which uh, probably the best statements of humanism in history were in Genesis 3 when the serpent said to Eve, uh, you, you shall be as God yourself, determining for yourself good from evil. The essence of humanism is man is the reasoner of all things. Our, our reality is what we reason. Truth, truth is obtained by, reality, by our reason. Uh, Probably the second best statement of humanism of all time was a philosopher in the pre-Socratic philosophers called Protagoras of Abdera, not to be confused with Pythagoras, not the same guy. Protagoras said, man is the measure of all things. And so uh, what humanism is saying is you are God. You are the ultimate judge. Your Man's reason is the ultimate determiner of reality. Right. So now with that, um it, you need to kind of trace the history of humanism because humanism has changed. Uh but the uh ancient humanist, like you like uh Plato, the Renaissance humanist, uh like the French philosophs or so forth, and the Enlightenment humanists, I should, when I say French li- philosoph. They basically believe the second position, that man is ethically neutral. So uh, traditionally, humanists tended to believe the tabula rasa. Modern Western humanists tend to believe that man is basically good. Now, in my Search for Utopia class, I do some unofficial surveys. And so every ta- every class, I ask, after I dis- describe these three things about um, is man ethically predisposed toward good, neutral, or, or ethically neutral, or evil? I ask for a show of hands. How many people believe that people are basically good? About 85 to 90% choose that. That is the belief of modern man. Okay, now, by the way, when you talk about this kind of belief, you're talking about uh, a belief that's unprovable. There's no social science per se, although they used to call it the social sciences, but that's a little bit facetious. I mean, there's no scientific way of, this This is a philosophical or theological issue. So, um, then historically, though, most humanists believe, and I still get about 15% of the students, 10 or 15% say man is morally neutral. I have never, in the four years I taught, a couple classes a semester, so we're talking hundreds and hundreds of students, I have never gotten a single student that believed man was morally flawed or twisted. Not even ones that could say they're Christians. Now, once I get those votes in and I make sure that everyone is clear where their position is, I begin to talk about history, and uh, you know, if you uh, study all of known history, you cannot come up with 365 days since uh, since the you know uh, we we know a lot about history beginning with about the fourth century or fourth fourth millennium BC because uh, of course uh, advanced civilizations popped up in Greece or well not Greece origin. Egypt and Mesopotamia and the Mayans and, and India and so forth, and uh, uh, so there, you know, so there's a lot more recorded history after around 3000 BC. And so, if you go from there to all the history we know about, you cannot find 365 days on this pl- in the history of this planet that there was not a war going on somewhere. Now, if you study literature. Art, music, philosophy probably the most common theme in all of literature is man's incredible in cruelty to his fellow man. Man's inhumanity to man. Now, um, the whole idea of Greek tragedies was based on that people had a moral flaw. And that moral flaw was usually called hubris, which was a kind of pride that would makes us blind, uh, which there's a lot of that to go around in the modern times. And, uh, and what uh, happens in hubris is the, the plot uh, goes on and the hubris causes the destruction of the person having it and they come to see it and have like a catharsis cleansing experience from there from the pride, but after it's too late to save them. That's the essence of Greek, Greek tragedies. Um, if you Now, one of the things that you have to see um, if you're talking about this, if you're going to hold to the position that man is basically good or basically neutral also, is that um, although all humanistic philosophies have one of those two positions, all humanistic philosophies then reverse themselves and have man's uh, inhumanity to man and man's and social injustice and, and all kinds of injustice as a major theme of their philosophies. So you take someone like Carl, uh, I almost said Carl Freud, I was going to mix Marx and Freud. Uh, uh, they're not as far apart as you think. Uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, in his book Civilization and Its Discontents, basically said the most the only noticeable common characteristics that all men have is all people have an incredible sense of guilt. Now, he then postulated where that guilt's coming from in a quite different place than Judeo-Christian philosophy would. Guilt is uh, more because of your environment. It's because of society and your parents and the church and the synagogue and the schools and everything else, they don't want you to act on all your primal urges. So therefore you feel guilty and neurotic and you're never in harmony with yourself and so forth. Marx, he, the, 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 the most noticeable thing about communist philosophy is that there's this great evil in the world. So it completely reverses the tabula rasa idea in Marx, then puts the uh, the great evil in the world in the property owners, the so-called bourgeoisie. Uh, and so, therefore, um, this is very important. Any every view of mankind has some basic idea about why we are so uh, guilty, so selfish, so prideful, and so nasty to each other. and why there's so much injustice. And your view of that will control your view of how it has to be eradicated. So Lenin, not John Lenin for you modern kids, uh, <laughs> uh, when, the, when the Bolsheviks took over in Russia, Lenin, a good disciple of Marx and Engels, uh, in communist manifesto, Marx and Engels said uh, communism is a humanism. They understood the base, moral basis of the philosophy. And Lenin said, if we have to kill millions of people to bring about a more perfect and, and righteous and godly society, or he wouldn't say godly, but a more equitable society, uh, then that is a sacrifice we need to make. It's worth it. Now, everybody thinks Machiavelli says the end justifies the means. He implies that, but he never says that anywhere. Um, but what, what is happening there is, is this. If your idea of sin is that it's rooted in people's education and the fact that they own property and so forth. They can't be redeemed. They can't be converted. They can't be changed. Uh, just like if you go back to Plato's Republic, which was a statist view of, of utopia, you, we, the philosopher Kings, we just need to forget the generation that exists now in communism and fascism and so forth. We just need to kill them off. Uh, so that we can create a new environment whereby the state brainwashes and educates the children and they won't have this moral flaw so in all status views um there are those who are hopeless that just need to be eliminated uh but then we what but we can take the children and we can mankind can be saved by more education and by You know, in in modern America, that would be like, buy more values clarification and uh, this sort of thing. So let's not look at uh, if there are systemic problems with education. Let's just throw more money at it. So these things have implications for uh, your approaches to life. Uh, Moving on, the second question is, do human beings have innate value? all philosophical systems and by the way i you know you the, the word philosophy and theology if you're a naturalist you tend to think of it as philosophy if you're a theist you would call it theology but they're basically this, they're both religion man is made in the image of god and he's uh, he's of necessity religious and every person has ideas in their brain about who or what is ultimately real which is a religious question and what is the purpose and nature of man? And so, and therefore, how should man treat his fellow man? And, and what would make a better world? Everybody has ideas about this. I wouldn't be doing what we're doing in the inner city and so forth if I didn't think it was the best chance in making a better world. At least for some people. The Lord help us to uh, increase our sphere of how many people we serve. So do people have innate value? Well, value is always um, inextricably intertwined to something that you're comparing it to. So, you know, you work uh, and you get a paycheck at the end of the week and you wish, you first of all, get upset about the, the gap between the gross and the net, <laughs> right because you're like oh my god they stole so much from me it, did, am i getting my value for that <laughs> but then secondly most workers think i ought to get paid more <laughs> because you're saying my time's more valuable than what my employer thinks it is <laughs> right and uh if most of us if our employer called us in and said you know i'm thinking about giving you a raise we wouldn't go no <laughs> I, I I'm already paid too much. I don't deserve it. <laughs> when I do a better job, I'll let you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, and when I bring more value to the company then i'll i'll uh, I'll be back to see you. That would be awesome. <laughs> so value is always in relation to things like money or other life forms, are we more, you know, uh, who's, you know, is a human being more valuable than a whale or, you know, now, uh, if, if you're a biblical thinker, the righteous man is compassionate to his ox and to his donkey and so forth, uh, Proverbs, but, uh, most biblical thinkers would say it's okay to use animals for the testing of medicines and so forth because, but we, but they would stop the line. What, what often does actually happen is sometimes these animals are tortured, uh, and cr- treated incredibly, terribly, uh, not take, not taken care of, and so forth. That should never be. You know the PETA people and so forth. They have a point. But if we're if we're of the same value, then you can't experiment on a cancer saving drug with a giraffe, uh, be, because the giraffe would be of equal value. So value is always in relation to something, uh, in, to, in relation to our creator, our life for, other life forms, or the state. Is the state more valuable? Should we uh, keep letting 18-year-old kids who don't know that much about life sign their life away to go get killed on the fields of war uh, without any parental consent or even any education as to what they're signing up for. So how you know, value is always in relationship to something. There are you know there are those that believe the state is more important in its goals than you and therefore raising your taxes, therefore, and so forth. Now, uh, the third question is, is um, uh, oh, by the way, the, the answers, of course, to the value thing is, um, in a Judeo-Christian cram- framework, is that m- man is created in God's image. That's in Latin in theology, you call that the Imago Dei. And therefore, the Christian view would be that all, all human beings have incredible value incredible being the root word for unbelievable value, like value beyond what you can actually know. They're more valuable than you could ever know. Every human being is more valuable than you could ever know. So um, most Judeo-Christian thinking tends to think of man as the crown of creation, but God is the creator. Therefore, uh, many twisted views of Judeo-Christian thinking that have been... uh, that have been totally irresponsible about the environment and about preservation of species and these kinds of things are not biblically defensible, although that's been na- done in the name of Judeo-Christianity at times. That would be one of the main areas that, uh, that people of a humanistic persuasion and people of a Judeo-Christian persuasion ought to be able to agree Although we might not agree about how to at- achieve the ends. Um, in a more naturalistic uh, perspective, there was a time, especially when, when Darwin first uh, came out with, uh, you know, anci- if you go back and study ancient civilizations, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, so for all ancient civilizations outside of Israel were evolutionary in their, in their what's called cosmogenic mythopoeic literature. That is, their, uh, their fictional stories of the birth of the universe. So, for instance, in Egypt, all, they, mo- most of them start with water, which is a universal symbol of chaos, and then there's this silt and formed an island, and then out of the li- island and came a cow, and this is how life started. So Judeo-Christian thinking eventually smashed all those philosophies, And a creationist viewpoint of the world emerged in Western culture until the time of Darwin. But if you go back and say Thales and all the ancient Greek philosophers, they were all evolutionary thinkers. Very thoroughly, you know, Pythagoras or whoever was an evolutionist. Um, All Darwin did was basically say, okay, obviously a cow didn't come forth. And obviously Judeo-Christian thinking has smashed that into absurdity. And that we need to connect our thinking to be less less peak, less uh, fictional. And uh, we need to tie it to reality somehow better. For, Christ, for Judeo-Christian thinking, that is tied to historical reality. And um, so along came Darwin and said, hey, man wants evolution. We're going to look at the, the next week when we start looking at man's fall and so forth. Part of, the biggest part of man's fall is all people want to be God deniers. Without the grace of God working in your life, you are running from God until he, no one can come unless the Father draws him. You will be a God denier and you will be, uh, you will not see your need for a rescuer until God by his grace opens your eyes to see so. And we as Christians pray for and work for that to happen. um hoping ho- hoping to be instruments of god to plant, water and sow toward that happening. So um you know uh so moving on the third the third um uh question that that men ask is is character human character more um influenced by our environment or more influenced by our heredity. And they call it the nature versus nurture debate or usually express the nurture versus nature because uh, in the current philosophical climate of universities and so forth, the uh, the more humanistic nurture argument is ascendant. And so it's usually expressed as nurture versus nature. But in other words... um, Is the fact that I, uh, you know, can't stop driving my car too fast and can't overcome this moral problem or my alcoholism, or as you know, most of you know, I was a drug addict until about 1974. And uh, I would uh, basically, uh, you know, if I was taking the more uh, environmental approach, I would say, well, of course, because I my parents were Catholic and I grew up in this guilt. I like to joke that I grew up Catholic. I can feel guilty about anything. Uh, you know, I grew up in this performance-based, non-grace-based view of Christianity and, and it made me neurotic. And it's all it was my parents' fault and my neighborhood's fault. Of course, I didn't see it as any problem until I uh, decided to quit being a drug addict. But uh, <laughs> I thought it was a good thing until then. But uh, so, you know... The idea is, what is more predominant? Now, one of the interesting things is all philosophies have common ground in that nobody says it's completely heredity or your n- nature, and nobody says it's completely your environment. But it's a matter of degrees and approaches. Uh, the Bible puts much more um, emphasis on your heredity than the... Than the contemporary culture does. A, because uh, we, as we're going to get into next week, uh, you, you were created in God's image, and that that image of God is passed down to you from your parents. Secondly, you were created in a state of fallenness uh, under the dominion or power of a thing that causes our all of our sense of justice and so forth to always be twisted, called sin, and that power. Uh, that flaw flaw that, that no matter how much we try, there's still flaws in our motivations, attitudes, morals, or whatever. That's passed down in, by heredity. Now, it's kind of interesting because one of the th- latest developments that's been kind of interesting since the development of DNA is it was always assumed if you take a mouse and you cut the tail off, like they do with, say, boxer dogs, something you're familiar with or other breeds of dogs, and you do this generation after generation, the next mouse would still be born with the tail. And that does seem to be mostly the case with physical characteristics. However, they're now postulating that some things such as addiction, alcoholism, and so forth are in fact uh, game changers to people's DNA in such a way that it's passed down. And that would be in keeping with Exodus chapter 20, verses three and four, the, the second and third commandments, that God basically says that, I, that I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the children upon the, uh, uh, upon the children's children for three to four generations. Basically, in other words, if you grow up uh, in what a lot of modern evangelicals would call generational curses, if you grow up with emotionally, spiritually uh, unhealthy parents, you uh, have more than just the environment you were growing up in that's going against you. You actually have a predisposition towards some things you're going to have to overcome. And if you uh, were to buy into that, that would go a long way in helping people know how to help adopted children better. I'm very, very, very for adoption but they do have a certain set of spiritual circumstances that they're actually inher- inheriting from their parents uh, in the biblical view. Now, uh, so those are the questions you ask with world worldview. Next week, we're going to look at the th- three essential attributes of mankind, which actually kind of overlap the same teaching. We're going to see that man is created in God's image. Uh, that and we're going to look at, of course, the Bible's view of these things. Secondly, that people are, that you are created for an eternal purpose. That's all uh, that you are. In other words, you are meant to live for something ultimately much bigger than yourself. You cannot find peace in life. You cannot find happiness until you're living for something much bigger than whoever gets the most toys at the end of life wins, or something of that nature. Uh, or you know, look at my cool car, or whatever. <laughs> you know. Um, so, uh, and it, and you have it. Therefore, you. Uh, part of what salvation is, in a biblical view, or being rescued, is not just changing your moral circumstances or whatever, but in fact, changing your attitudes and motivation, changing where you, why you're here, and what you're pursuing. Therefore, like what the people would call a call of God, as we'll look at next week, is inseparable from conversion. If you don't have this sense that, wow, there's a mission that I need to be given, I need to study more, I need to, et cetera, et cetera, I need to become more of what God intends for me to be, uh, it's doubtful whether you've actually been converted in any sort of Historical or biblical Judeo-Christian sense, um, and lastly, we'll look at the the concept that may, that moral flaw entered humanity, and that all people have this moral flaw. And we'll look at seven aspects of those moral flaws next week. Amen. We'll take a break and be back here in about eight to ten minutes to start the regular service. Thank you for coming early for an extra.